Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Lewis Hyman on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Debtor Nation, The History of America in Red Ink. My mother always claimed that she really had never borrowed any money. She did pay for almost everything in cash when she didn't pay with a check. She liked to write checks. Well, actually, I don't think she was telling the truth about that. She had borrowed a lot of money. Uh, having been bored in the 1930s, late 1930s, she grew up in an era in which consumer credit was expanding very rapidly, actually more rapidly than any other time in human history. And she had available to her many debt instruments that we have grown very accustomed to. And during her lifetime, many others appeared And I think she probably took advantage of them, although I don't ever remember seeing her with a credit card. I have several. Uh, Lewis Hyman tells the story of the expansion of consumer credit in the United States from the late 19th century to the present. And it really is an interesting story because at the end of the 19th century, it was very hard for an individual to borrow money. Banks really didn't lend to individuals. You could go and buy something on consignment, I suppose, or you could get a certain amount of what we would call credit at the grocery store. But other than that, you could not borrow money in large amounts. You could borrow against your farm, so to say, but you couldn't go and have unsecured credit extended to you. Obviously, that has all changed now, and Lewis gets us from point A, no credit, to point B, universal credit. And he's also able to tell us some very interesting things about what has happened recently with the securitization of many different kinds of credits and uh, the reasons why those debts are being defaulted on and the consequences thereof. So, It's just a great pleasure to talk to somebody, a historian who knows everything about these things and can give us some historical insight into the situation in which we find ourselves today. So I really enjoyed talking to Lewis today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. And without further ado, here it is. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm very glad to hear that. I should tell our listeners that we have Lewis Hyman on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Debtor Nation, The History of America in Red Ink. I I have to say this is really a very significant book in the sense that it uh, tells a a kind of secret, I would call it almost a hidden story. We all have grown very accustomed to using many, many debt instruments, and we're all probably in debt in one way or another, but it wasn't always so. And this is something Lewis uh, points out. Actually, it wasn't always so, even quite recently, at least in historical times, and there was really something of a revolution in human affairs that happened, I guess, first in the United States, uh, starting in the first part of the 20th century, and it has proceeded until today, such that, as I say, we all have uh, little cards in our pocket that we can give to people, and people will give us credit for seemingly for nothing. So that's it really is a very significant thing in the way that this these, these credit instruments have uh, infiltrated our life, I guess I would say, and they've obviously been in the news recently with um, – well, I don't know how to put it. Um, either they're predatory lending or people aren't smart about lending or something like that. I don't know. We'll talk to Lewis in a little while. Uh, Lewis, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and then I went to college at Columbia University where I studied uh, history with uh, Elizabeth Blackmar and uh, Eric Foner. And after that, after I got my BA, I had the good fortune to uh, go to the University of Toronto, where I I had a Fulbright to study Canadian labor history. And then after my time in Toronto ended, I went to get my PhD at Harvard University, where 
I studied under Elizabeth Cohen and wrote a dissertation, um, also titled Debtor Nation, about the history of the rise of debt in modern America. And uh, my committee was also comprised of Sven Beckert and Neil Ferguson. Mm-hmm. I see. So let, let me ask a question that I, I think I learned this online. I'm not sure, and it may be incorrect. You were also a math major? Is that right? It's true. It's true. It's my dark secret. Uh, I studied math as an undergrad uh, in addition to history. Yeah. And uh, that's I think that's I, I like it. I, I, I'm a director of undergraduate studies here at Iowa, and people come to me and they say, I want to be a double major. And I say, what are you going to major in? And they say, well, I'm going to do a history in poli-sci or history in sociology or history in I'm like, don't do that. That doesn't make any sense. And I always say that to them, now, if you were doing history in math – that would be something that might be interesting to an employer because it shows two very different skill sets. So kudos to you. That's what I say. Thank you. Yes. I, I highly recommend it. And as much as I try to get away from math, um, I ended up doing some even, dare I say, quantitative yeah. methods in my, my work. Yeah. I, now, I hope it doesn't show up in the writing, but it is in the book. There are uh, P-tests and T-tests and uh, P-values and all, all the, the fun uh, various forms of math that you can use for history or in the yeah. book. I, I did something similar to that, not to toot my own horn, um, uh, in, in a book that I wrote that is very little read. Actually, it's a two-volume book that is very little read, and I gave it to one of my advisors after I'd finished it. This is my second or third project, and it has lots of tables and charts and, and statistical tests in it, and uh, it has formulas and things like that. And he looked at me and he said, are you going to put this in English? <laughs> I felt very bad about that. It is, it's, it's, yeah, it, it is certainly a problem. Um, turning all that math into readable narrative, yeah. which I hopefully have done. No, you've done it. I, I did not. I definitely did not do it. I can tell you that for a fact. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the origin of the book, which was your dissertation, I guess. How did you land on this particular topic? Well, I started um, looking for a topic in 2003, so when the current financial crisis was but a glimmer in Alan Greenspan's eye. Um, and I, I had studied a lot of labor history, and I studied a lot of consumer history, and I was trying to understand you know, the, the everyday economic lives of working-class people. And I began to think, well, what's really important to that life? Um, and I thought about uh, consumer credit. And I went to the library, as we all do, and tried to find out what had been written. And uh, there is Wendell Calder's wonderful book, um, but it ended in 1930, and it was largely a cultural history. Um, and uh, as m- most people do, I said, well, there's a period after that, and maybe it's not just about culture. And so that's how I started my project. And uh, from... The inception, it was really much more grounded in uh, political economy and in sort of the culture of consumption, which is how a lot of uh, histories of consumption are written, of course, in terms of culture rather than mm-hmm. in terms of capital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating read. I can tell people that. I want to begin talking about an era that uh, is remembered by almost no one now, I would say, and that is the era in which uh, individuals really couldn't borrow money. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to try to borrow money in the late 19th, early 20th century in the United States? Sure. Um, Even though the book is predominantly about the 20th century, I think it's really important to contrast it with what came before. Uh, People have always borrowed. Um, People have borrowed from their relatives. People have borrowed from their bosses. Uh, but what changed the 20th century was that borrowing became big business. Uh, it moved from the margins of the economy, from the province of loan sharks and you know small-time grocers, to being something that could be resold and invested in, like any other kind of um, 
financial instrument. So the story of my book is really how this happened, how debt in the late 19th century was something you could get from, you know, a store, um, but it wasn't really something that was profitable to give to consumers. People lost money on it. Um, or you can borrow it from loan sharks, um, which was very profitable but illegal. So I begin the story uh, talking about a loan shark uh, named Mackie, um, who eventually goes on to found, um, with the legalization of small loan lending in the 1920s, goes on to found um, the first um, small loan company to have an IPO, something called the Household Finance Corporation, which they, you know, even through it was existed throughout the 20th century um, and was at the center of the subprime crisis. So that's how the story begins. It begins with the legalization of these small loans, uh, the relaxation of usury laws in the early 20th century, and then also at the same time uh, the expansion of installment credit in the 1920s and how uh, installment credit uh, was financed uh, by new kinds of financial institutions called finance companies, uh, and how those companies enabled widespread uh, consumption of uh, very expensive manufacturing goods uh, that were turned out by car companies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why don't we talk just a little bit about Mackie, because he's a colorful character. I don't know whether to put a black hat on him or a white hat on him. Was he a loan shark? He was a loan shark. Uh, He ran... The interesting thing about loans is that that are illegal, you could lend people money, uh, just not at rates that were profitable. So you could have shops all over town, as he did eventually, after he expanded his business in Chicago. Um, but the, what was illegal about them wasn't that they existed, but that they lent money at egregious rates. So it was sort of this quasi-legal kind of business. Um, and he operated under many different fronts. And so one of the things I talk about is how uh, a bunch of progressive reformers got together and uh, centered around the Russell Sage Foundation to raise the legal rate of interest to about 3% per month, uh, or about 40% a year, um, which would allow uh, small loan companies to form that would compete with these loan sharks. And which uh, the loan sharks uh, lent at rates of up to 300% a year. the reason why they needed such high rates of interest for, as, as we see today, um, you know, seem very high to us today, is because it was very difficult to find out uh, if someone was a good credit risk. You know, this is before Social Security numbers, this is before FICO scores even. I mean, how do you find out if someone pay you back? So it was very expensive to, it was just as expensive to find out if someone was going to pay back for a lending of $100 as if you went to $1,000. So these costs, these transaction costs, really ate up a lot of the profit. And so when these reformers legal, uh, pushed for the legalization, to their chagrin, uh, across the country, loan sharks took some of their business, you know, legitimate. Um, they began to use their experience in lending. They used their shops and their capital to set up legal lending shops um, across the country. And these businesses, uh, like I said, uh, eventually became what, for Mackey, uh, became Household Finance Corporation. And, uh, it, and in the end, the reformers um, resigned themselves to the fact that even though they were opposed to these loan sharks, they were happy that these loan sharks were doing legal business that could be regulated by the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one question that all of our listeners will have is, uh, we probably, I don't know if all of us, but many of us have had the experience of going to our local bank and getting a loan. What did banks do? Uh, 
prior to the invention of these credit instruments. Could you go into a bank and get a loan? So, uh, you could if you have, were a businessman. So you could go to a commercial bank and get a loan um, called an accommodation loan. And bankers would get, so if you are a big shot and had your own company and you did a lot of business with the bank where you're, you know, people would borrow for, for business all the time, right? Because you want to give money for business, they make more money on the money and they can pay you back. But if you give money to somebody to borrow for consumption or to make ends meet, why would they pay you back, right? This is sort of one of the fundamental insights is that you could have uh, a banking in the 20s and 30s was that you could lend money to workers, um, salaried workers, uh, or and they would be able to pay you back and that you were not lending money to be invested in something productive, um, like a business. Um, so the, the bankers would give accommodation loans to their good customers, but they hated doing it. Uh, there was no interest usually, and they would rarely be paid back. They would sort of roll, they would refinance these debt, these loans over and over again. But for average people, um, banks wouldn't lend to them. In fact, the first personal loan departments of banks were set up in the 19, late 1920s, so 1928-ish, uh, Citibank, the National Citibank, the forerunner of Citigroup today, set up the first uh, personal loan department as a public relations stunt <laughs> to reach out to working working people in New York. Uh, yeah, they didn't really expect to make any money. It was very complex. Uh, it was a total reorientation of their business. And they had thousands and thousands of applicants, and they started to do it. And they actually made some money on it, according to their records. I did research in the Citibank archives, actually, um, for this period. And they made money on it. Um, now, what was funny to me was that even though they claimed to make money, other bankers didn't believe them. Other bankers, there was no possible way that people would pay them back. They didn't believe that transaction costs could be so low. Um, what changed all that was actually uh, an unexamined part of the FHA. So when the FHA is created in 1934, um, before they start lending home mortgages, which I think we're all very familiar with, um, they had something which is called the Title II loan program. They've been called the Title I loan program, um, also known as the Better Housing Program, that was to enable banks to lend money risk-free to homeowners so that they could improve their houses with newfangled devices like oil burner and to repair their roofs and stuff like that. Um, banks, and you can see this in the records of the correspondence between the head of Citibank um, and the head of National Citibank and the head of Bank of America, uh, really didn't have places to put their money. Um, businesses were not borrowing during the middle of the Great Depression yet. So banks needed a place to put their capital. So what's interesting is this program is created by the federal government to allow these banks to lend money risk-free. If, if consumers default, the government will um, arrange, they arrange a complex insurance scheme so they would be paid back the principal and um, bonds. These banks start to set up these personal lending programs for housing, but then they realize, well, if I can lend Joe, Joe Blow $500 for his house and he pays it back, um, why can't I lend them $500 for anything? Because, in fact, all these borrowers paid back the money that they borrowed. And through this program, this Title I loan program, banks discover that they can make money on personal loans. And then it expands out from there. They begin Bank of America then rapidly expands its operations into car financing and home financing. Um, 
and uh, other kinds of loans to consumers. And consumer lending really takes off in the late 1930s um, from banks as they learn how to do this through the federal government. And so the common wisdom of the late 20s gets totally turned, the common sense of the late 20s gets turned on its head by the late 1930s um, through federal policy. And it's just a really uh, marvelous, uh, crazy inversion um, that you see uh, of this kind of uh, lending thinking and lending practices. And you can really see the operation of the federal government um, reshaping how capitalists think about lending um, through this program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a number of different factors that drive the expansion of credit from investment credit to consumer credit. Uh, One of them you've already mentioned. The the other one I kind of want to talk about is buying large, durable goods. One of the difficulties that, as you explained, that the makers of large, durable goods had is that the price point was too high for uh, uh, people of modest means to get in. So then they start to extend credit themselves. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I'm speaking specifically of car companies. Sure. Um, Until 1919, most cars were sold for cash, full stop. I think that's an important thing that we have to realize. Um, It's only in the 1920s, in the early 1920s, um, with the recovery um, after after the war, that uh, Americans begin to borrow for cars. So initially, uh, finance companies for consumers were local. They were fly-by-night operations. They were just uh, you know, people realizing that they could make money um, giving people money to buy cars. Um, companies like GMAC uh, were set up to finance dealerships so that they could finance the inventory of cars coming out of the, the factory so that the factories could run 24 hours a day um, throughout the year and the car companies wouldn't have to hold that inventory. Um, within a couple of years, these finance companies realized that they can uh, also make money by lending consumers. And by the mid-1920s, GMAC um, is uh, lending money to millions of consumers uh, around the country, um, enabling uh, more Americans than ever before to own cars and enabling uh, their factories, in turn, to turn out all those cars for sale. And I think this is an important point, that a lot of these early forms of financing are to enable profits to be made on manufacturing. Mm-hmm. That financing was very rarely an end in itself um, outside of banks and these finance uh, outside of uh, small loan companies. For a lot of the borrowing that Americans did, which is mostly on installment credit, it was a way to drive the profits of manufacturing. That was the real profit center of capitalism. These other kinds of things were really ancillary. Mm-hmm. Um, to that main um, that main driver of profit. Mm-hmm. Explain, if you will, what uh, installment credit is. Sure, sure. Uh, installment credit is a form of credit where you borrow a large amount of money um, to buy a particular good. A contract is written up. So if you buy a car, um, you borrow a substantial fraction of the value of the car, um, and the person who lends you the money has the right to repossess that car if you don't pay them back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's called secure debt. And it's very different than the kind of debt most of us have to that today um, on credit cards, which is unsecured debt. You, they can't repossess socks you bought or the lunch <laughs> that you bought. Uh, you know, so it's a secured form of debt. And it makes sense when goods have lots of value in resale. Mm-hmm. So you can resell a car 
I mean, obviously, now you can resell a car. But you can't really resell a washing machine that easily, right? You can't resell a vacuum cleaner. Whereas in the 1920s, you could easily resell nearly all forms of durable goods, um, furniture, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's before the era of cheap manufacturing. Um, so it's a very different era, and in this era where you can repossess and resell goods, installment credit is particularly suited to that kind of manufacturing and consumer economy. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons it expanded was that it had such a great moral valence, getting back to culture. Um, installment credit allowed you to budget for your purchases over time. So budgets had this aura of respectability. Um, planning, the sort of, that, you know, a lot of um, financial schools would tell you that everything is okay if you can budget for it. And they still tell you that today. Um, one of the things I talk about is, in the book, is about how budgets, while they discipline your spending, they don't discipline the economy around you. Mm-hmm. Um, if things are uncertain um, in the economy, no, no matter how well you budget, you can't control for it. Um, so... That's one of the things I thought. Anyway, so that's what installment credit is. I, I was, yeah, I was gonna. Um, that, that's actually a nice segue. This is all borrowing against future income, so to say, uh, and it might make perfect sense from the point of view of the individual. But as you've just pointed out, what happens and what happened in 1929 when the prospects for future income for millions of workers declined precipitously. That is, they could yeah, no I mean, make I, their payments. Yeah. Um, what actually happens in the Great Depression, surprisingly enough, is that most people do not default on their installment credit. They do not default on their um, small goods. They default on their mortgages, but that's less a function of unemployment than the fact of the way the mortgages were structured, so that... And going into the 1930s, a lot of mortgages were balloon mortgages, which means that they had to be refinanced every three to five years. We um, were dependent on the availability of help to refinance those loans. Um, what happened in the early 30s was that all that investment capital dried up because people were scared to invest their money, um, which set off a feedback loop, which caused less money to be available for investment, which caused more foreclosures, um, and so on and so forth. Um, these bar- The borrowing against future income is very important because it makes sense to borrow, and it's a good idea to borrow against future income when the future is stable and when there's growth in your wages over time. So basically, the entire post-war period, it's great to borrow, and I talk about that to a great deal. Um, but in the early 30s, um, borrowing really dried up, um, but people tended to act what they had borrowed um, in a surprising turn of events. And it was very counterintuitive for people at the time, and I think it's counterintuitive for us now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you mentioned a couple of things that have to do, I, I think, strongly with, with culture, although I suppose they're involved in some way in uh, rational calculus or finance, and that is... One was usury laws, which I think we've largely forgotten, and the other was the general notion that it probably wasn't a good idea to borrow or lend money. Uh, at, at what point and how did these cultural values change? Can we pinpoint it or associate it with a particular number of years or with a particular expansion of a credit instrument or a government policy? Sure. I mean, I think that different kinds of credit 
change in mill valence at different times. So uh, installment credit had an association with the, with the poor or the working class through the 1920s. Uh, but by the end of the 1920s, um, it had begun to go away by the early 1930s, late 1920s, uh, largely because so many people were using it um, for cars and for other forms of buying. It just became more normalized. Uh, mortgages, um, which for until the financial crisis, the recent financial crisis, were associated with a way of being respectable and middle class. Um, they were a way of seeing um, an adult, an economic adult. Uh, that, that, that value changed in the 1930s, that changed at the creation of the FHA. Um, it made, um, it gave, lent federal authority to borrowing. It made it part and parcel of good citizenship mm-hmm. um, to be in mortgages, to have a mortgage. Um, and it also was a shift, of course, in the meaning of the mortgage, a shift from the mortgage. A 19th century mortgage was a mortgage on your farm. Mm-hmm. It sapped at your independence. It sapped at your productivity. Uh, a mortgage in the 1930s was a mortgage um, to enable you to live your consumer dream. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a cultural shift, but it's also a shift in the way that the economy is organized from an agricultural to an increasingly uh, urban industrial one. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, the shift that there's a shift of credit cards in the 1980s, right? Um, in the early 1980s, late 1970s, uh, credit cards are seen as the province of the rich. Uh, they're a way to be flash mall. Um, but by today, of course, credit cards are a sign. Uh, maybe you don't have your stuff, you know, all your finances together that you have to borrow. They're a sign for Um So the cultural meaning of uh, finance really depends on the cultural context. Who has access to them? Um, as well as the changes in the economy. Mm-hmm. At what point did the, we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to be very clear. At what point did the government, uh, that is the parties themselves, uh, come to understand that having credit available to consumers was in the best interest of the entire republic? Uh, I think it was during the New Deal. And uh, I say that because there were arguments by policymakers on both sides of that. You know, how long should we make uh, amortized long-term mortgages for. The idea that you could be in debt for 15 years for a house seemed unconscionable to a lot of people in the Federal Reserve, um, people at the FHA, um, but it was seen as a way to expand home ownership. It was a way, seen as a way to stabilize this um, era that's refinancing so that it was longer than the business cycle. Um, it was seen as a way to enable people to save um, in a structured fashion. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really when it changes. It changes in the 1930s uh, through federal policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there people that railed against this and said, you know, this is a terrible idea. We're teaching people to act immorally. They're going to borrow money that they'll never pay back. They're going to be corrupted by this. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. That, that it was, people would be in debt and, it, and you can see connections to late 19th century populism, right? The idea of Eastern parasite bankers uh, keeping Western farmers in thrall. Um, there are connections to this. And uh, you even see it in the kinds of choices some people make. So Henry Ford um, does offer consumer finance mm-hmm. through the 20s. And it's one of the reasons that Ford sort of loses share to GM. And he doesn't do this because... He doesn't want to be, you know, what is famously anti-Semitic, right? Um, but he has a sense that 
Uh, and I think historians usually write this as, as just a quirk, a strange aspect of Ford, uh, largely independent from his business. But when he realized that he thought of Eastern banking as Jewish, um, and that he himself was one of the loudest, most vocal Semites in America, and Ford Motor Company did not offer credit, you start to see connections being made between the operations of big, important American corporations and these cultural ideas of credit, not just um, at the certain level, but also at the lender level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Tell us a little bit about what happened to the credit system during and in the run-up to World War II. So during uh, the 1930s, you have the, as I said, the sort of expansion of uh, personal loan lending by banks. You also have the creation of the FHA, which I think historians are more familiar with. Um, I write about it um, and its relationship to the creation of new forms of investment um, by capital. Um, You also have the formation of Fannie Mae in 1938, uh, which creates um, a secondary market for mortgages up until the creation. Uh, basically, what happens is that the FHA standardizes the, the home into a commodity. So before the FHA, every house was an individual house. It was unique and had to be evaluated locally. The FHA created a standard system to evaluate housing so that people in Texas uh, could be evaluated by people in New York. When this happens, um, you, it's similar to what uh, Bill Cronin writes about with the sort of grading of corn. Um, we saw on the farm in the 19th century that uh, these individuals are reduced to classes and it allows it to be treated as a commodity so that people in New York can buy these mortgages from, people, from uh, mortgage originators in Texas. So Fannie Mae is set up as a market so that it's very difficult to coordinate the purchases uh, from New York to Texas. So a Texas mortgage company will lend money, then sell that mortgage to Fannie Mae, which in turn will sell it to an insurance company in New York or Hartford. Um, and by this uh, system, capital can flow from the east um, to the Sundown, other parts of the country, mm-hmm. um, and it's a national mortgage market to form. And that's how we entered into World War II. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So uh, let's move on just a little bit after World War II. Um, uh, how, do the, how does the credit market change? Is this the moment at which the, um, the credit card is invented? Is sometimes after World War II? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I, I read at length about um, something called uh, Regulation W, uh, which was an attempt to uh, regulate installment credit and chartered accounts during World War II. Um, it was a failed policy in some ways um, to restrict lending in certain categories of goods. And cultural historians will appreciate it because I talk a lot about hybridity um, in the World War II period. Um, as firms begin to mix and match different kinds of credit practices to evade regulations. So the regulations, um, Regulation W, which was um, regu- controlled by the Federal Reserve, um, had very strict controls on certain types of credit. And when retailers moved outside that forms of, those forms of credit, they could uh, not be regulated by the state. So what retailers did was develop something novel, um, which eventually becomes a forerunner of credit cards today, revolving credit. And revolving credit spread around the country um, towards, as a practice towards the end of World War II as a way to evade 
federal regulations. Mm-hmm. And in the post-war period, um, this newfangled revolving credit really takes off. Um, and I talk about how um, there is a story among, um, you know, uh, histories uh, that sort of tangentially discuss this, uh, that the credit card was invented by um, Diners Club in 1950. Um, That's what I would have said. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the story that Diners Club tells you, that um, that a traveling head of the founder of uh, Diners Club is on business in Brooklyn. He wants a steak. Uh, he realizes he doesn't have his wallet, and uh, he's like, "Why? Why can't I have? Why can't I have a steak? I'm good for it." And lo and behold, this is the creation of travel and entertainment cards in a diners club. Now, and this is the forerunner of credit cards. And now, this is the story, and it's, it's what's told. But as soon as I tell you that, as a historian, you should start to realize it doesn't make any sense at all. Who is shopping in post-war America? Was it businessmen traveling around the country? No, it was. Um, it was women, mostly. It was wives. It was um, it was the sort of middle class. And where were they shopping? They were shopping at department stores. And lo and behold, when you go and you look at the records of department stores, you begin to see that everything that Diners Club claims to have invented was actually invented at the department store. And more likely, this head of Diners Club thought of it not in Brooklyn, but on his way home when his wife picked him up from the train. Um, you know, that this, that these kinds of revolving credit systems, these kinds of charger plates, um, really found their origin in department stores, not at banks and not with businessmen. Uh, banks did create in the early 1950s um, local lending systems, but banks also failed at them and folded within a couple of years. Whereas department stores were wildly successful. It's not until the 1960s that you really see the takeoff in bank lending. So I write a lot about the connection of gender and suburbia and department stores and the origin of the credit card. And it's not just a needling corrective. Um, it's not just saying, oh, they're, look at, look at them right on. Uh, I think it speaks to a larger issue, which is that the credit card emerges out of a very particular set of historical structures of gender and class um, in post-war in the post-war suburbs, um, and so that's that's what I focus on, rather than this great man narrative of um, of Diners Club. Mm-hmm. Well, talk talk a little bit about that. I mean, what which um, department stores are we talking about, and what areas did they grow up in? Where were the first uh, revolving credit lines given in department stores? That kind of thing. Yeah, well, the very first, um, it's called the permanent budget account. Um, the permanent budget account was a way to pay back a little every month um, and sort of flexibly borrow. Um, the first one was in 1938 at um, but really was not um, practiced for very long before it was restricted by World War II credit practices. Um, and then these the permanent budget account or other forms of, they had lots of names, uh, arose organically, I argue, out of Regulation W. Um, but after the war, Bluegales continued to be at the forefront of uh, this revolving credit revolution um, in terms of uh, being part of federated department stores, which was the umbrella corporation for uh, lots of department stores like Filene's. Um, so, in Sanger's and department stores across mm-hmm. the country that maintain their brand identity, um, even though they were part of this um, part of this um, system. So, what happens is that for most of the 40s and 50s, these revolving credit systems were used to promote 
sales in the stores, and they were very good at promoting sales, so that people who bought on these revolving credit systems consume more than those without them. Um, what changed in 1958, and so in a lot of ways, they were similar to the way in which manufacturers create finance companies to make profits on manufactured goods, right? It was, again, the main center of profit was in the selling of goods, not in the financing of goods. What changes in 1958 is Bloomingdale's and Vincent, the option account. So that instead of having to pay back your, um, your bill within a few months, you can pay it back or not. And if you don't pay it, and oh, I forgot to mention this, the permanent budget account had an interest rate of about 6% annually. So it allowed credit to be extended, but it didn't allow profits to be made. It was sort of a big, even convenience thing. It was like mm-hmm. gift wrap. It was, <laughs> if you think of it as gift wrap or delivery, that's how you should think about it. Yeah. And that's how important credit, men, credit managers were in these stores. Um, they were the gift wrap. Um, Changes in 1958, um, Bloomingdale's ups the interest rate to 20%. They tell people they can pay back or not pay back as they want to. Um, and when they do this, it becomes wildly popular. One of the reasons that charge account, these charge accounts were so popular was that at the checkout, um, consumers could just lay down their charger plate and say, charge it. And in the 1920s and 30s, these charge accounts had a class balance to them so that um, only the wealthier could do this at nice department stores. Um, but with a revolving credit account, anybody could. And at the checkout, whether you could afford to pay it back that month um, as a tr- older charge account would allow you to, or whether you had to pay it back over several months as you could do in the permanent budget account, um, you looked the same. So they, it allowed you to perform class in a different way. And the option can only exacerbated this. Um, and what stores did was to actually get rid of that function. They collapsed the regular charge account, which you had to pay back every month, and the permanent budget account into one. And so you had the option of paying it back or not. And for customers, they loved this. This is like the best thing going. And so it, it was very popular, and stores that uh, used it uh, found that customers flocked to their stores, and it was very popular but they also found that they suddenly had all this money being lent out uh-huh. to customers. So only a year later, uh, John Labor, the head of Bloomingdale's Credit, says that they actually have more capital invested in this, these option accounts than do an inventory. Uh-huh. So what does that mean? That means that more money is already sold than is available for customers to buy, mm-hmm. which reduces necessarily the options and the impulse buying of customers. So because of this, um, the uh, because of this, uh, they look for other ways to finance this capital. They begin to run out of money, and they look to, um, and I write about how bond markets are eventually tapped to finance this new kind of consumer debt. Once these department stores accumulated all this credit, what did they do with it? Did they go on to the uh, market in debt and sell it, or was it fungible at that point? Yeah, so there's three ways it happened. Um, They either resold the debt to um, finance companies, um, or they, which then in turn tapped bond markets to fund the debt. Um, And these finance companies could either be internal, um, like the Sears Roebuck Acceptance Corporation, or external, um, so for big companies, they had their own internal um, finance company. And then for smaller 
uh, stores, they look to external finance companies, um, like the yeah, they look to external co- to fund their debt. What's really important is stuff um, is that a lot of companies, um, particularly new upcoming forms of retail like discount stores, look to um, General Electric. General Electric, um, I, I write about it at length. I talk about how it transformed from being a company that made motors to a company that made debt. And I talk about how General Electric in 1959 also gets on this revolving credit bandwagon, but wildly overinvests in their capacity to process their own customers' debts. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that they have so much capacity that they begin to lend it out to um, lend it out to stores and create private label credit so that by 1969, one in 25 American households is borrowing from General Electric mm-hmm. and hardly anybody knows that they are. Yeah. So from the cashier to um, to the capital markets, General Electric is funding all this debt uh, mm-hmm. through private label credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this process, you see not just a transformation of department stores, which, you know, I don't think it's that important. What's important is you see such the transformation of a whole economy reorienting itself to finance that consumer credit comes profitable um, and as a profit center becomes investable um, so that large companies like General Electric um, begin to turn more and more of their capital into consumer debt Mm -hmm. and investors um, through these finance companies do as well. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, let me ask you a a kind of experiential question that bears on my own experience. And that is, uh, I don't think my mother ever had a credit card. She wrote checks and really liked to write checks. And I remember when I went to graduate (laughs) school, I ended up in, um, uh, when I was in California, I noticed for the very first time, this was the mid eighties, that the big credit card companies had stalls set up and you could uh, simply go and get a credit card. What had changed? Nobody was offering me a credit card in college, but once in the, in the, by the late '80s, everybody was offering me a credit card. Yeah, that's right. Um, there definitely was a shift in access to uh, credit cards um, by the uh, 1980s. Your experience is totally right on. Um, your experience is correct. Your your memory of what your mother did is probably less correct. That, um, <laughs> yeah. that uh, in a way that people of that generation often tell me they never borrowed for anything yeah. because of course they they would what changed was not they borrowed but that they were able to pay back. So they yeah. borrowed for their houses, they borrowed for their cars, they borrowed uh, on these revolving credit accounts at department stores. But they also had really good jobs, so they could easily pay back their debt. So it wasn't that Americans didn't borrow, is that they were able to rapidly pay back the amount they borrowed. That's what changed in the 1970s and 80s, that with rising inequality, with stagnating wages, Americans were less able to pay back the money that they had borrowed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So then how was it the case that by the end of the 80s, everybody was being offered a credit card? Uh, securitization. So that this... Income inequality, this wealth inequality, creates a lot of money at the top that needs to be invested. Um, and through the invention of um, bonds that uh, repackaged uh, credit card debt beginning in 1986, um, people could then uh, invest directly in consumer uh, in credit card debt. And so because they were able to resell it, there was a lot of money available to lend. And 
you know, a lot of people want to buy it, buy these debts. So a lot of people want the money. And so it became easier and easier to do this. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a very different situation if business loans had been as securitizable as credit card debts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, instead of being invested in non-productive assets, be invested in productive assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So basically people had cash. That is, uh, large investors had cash and they wanted a way to invest it. And they did it by, by securitizing or buying all this consumer debt and putting it into big packages. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. In the book, I, I talk about it in, in, in detail so that um, people are curious. They can they can see how that process happens, um, the relationship of this policy to the formation of securitization, um, which it, the state was very tightly linked to all these form, all these developments and in financial instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on interviews with um, people who were at the center of this process. The, I interviewed a banker who was part of the team that secured, did the first credit card securitization. I also interv- interviewed um, the former head of Citibank from the period, John Reed, uh, who told me about the rise, his experience, the rise of credit cards. So um, it's based on oral history as well as archival sources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I see, I see exactly what you're talking about. So uh, before I let you go, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to get your take on what has happened recently. Uh, we've gone through a kind of a debt crisis. People can no longer pay their debts. Uh and large institutions fell as a result of it. Can you give us um, the historian's take on what happened a couple of years ago when the credit markets failed? Um, I think that um, suddenly people realized they were on a house of cards, so they couldn't substitute um, credit for wages anymore. Um, that the that the fact that people were borrowing from their houses to make up for what they lacked in their jobs finally all came to a head. And I think that's what happened. I think that there was a lot of money at the top um, that wasn't being, there was being, there were money at the top was doing, was willing to lend money to people at the bottom, but they weren't willing to pay them wages. And because of this, um, people at the bottom both wanted to get leverage to get ahead, um, but there was also money for, available for them to borrow, so it fed on itself. And I think that income, investment, inequality, the three eyes, they all go together in the story of the financial crisis, which I write about in the book. Right. So had there been better jobs available with better wages, then we wouldn't be in this problem. Is that the short yes. course? Yes. And that's a short, but yeah. Uh, if we had figured out ways to securitize investments that produce good jobs instead of securitizing um, non-productive investments, then all that money that flows into credit cards would have flow, flowed into factories and yeah. Uh, businesses, you know, not just factories, but product things that create value rather than things that just are things already sold, as John LeBoer reminded us in 1959. Yeah, no, I see. That's a, yeah, that's interesting and consistent with what I I know. I mean, I was uh, I was borrowing money to buy uh, a house and then houses in the 1990s and early knots, and I did notice that it was quite easy to get a loan, even with a relatively modest professor's income. I won't tell you how much money they loaned me, but it was um, <laughs> many multiples of my annual salary, and I was this did surprise me. I mean, I paid it. I paid it all back, and everything is fine. But I, it, it was eye-opening when I could see that I could basically borrow into the seven figures. That just didn't seem wow. right. Um, but yeah, that's, and it's supply-driven. It's supply-driven. Um, yeah, uh, that it's 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 not just about. I think too much of this crisis is framed in terms of the borrowers and not the lenders, and not just the lenders as bad apples, right? Not just a few tricksters and hucksters, as we know, have always existed within capitalism. But 
what makes the conditions of possibility such that they have all this money to invest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they have all this money to lend to professors who, I'm happy you have a house, but, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, as a grad student, I could get a car loan for $50,000, yeah, right? I mean, this is, that's totally insane. Um, yeah, that, you know, so that, I, that is I, insane. So let, let me let me ask you this again. We've taken up a lot of your time, but I kind of want to know what you think. Uh, they've passed some legislation recently about this. I, I I have not read it carefully, but I imagine you have. Is the problem um, fixed or ameliorated, or are we right back where we started? Uh, the problem is not fixed. Uh, the main problem, which is uh, inequality, has been not not been addressed at all. There's a belief that you can just fix the particulars, reform this institution, or throw that guy in jail and then it all go away. And the main problem is that for the last 40 years, we've been substituting credit for wages. Mm-hmm. And until we address that fundamental problem with an organization of American capitalism, this will happen again and again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, well, that's um, sobering. That's very sobering because I don't, I don't see any great movement of uh, wages up. I don't know. Maybe you do, but I don't. Um, my, no, not at all. Yeah, my wages have been frozen here in Iowa for a while, so or b- basically frozen. And they, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I'm, well, that's that is very sobering indeed. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for spending uh, time with us today. I really appreciate it. It's a it's a fascinating story. We've been talking to Lewis Hyman about his book, Debtor Nation: The History of America in Red Ink. I, I want to close the interview with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project, Lewis? Uh, my next book is on the history of temporary workers, looking at the reorientation of American capitalism to the use of temporary laborers, both uh, day laborers, office temps, and management consultants after 1970, mm-hmm. and the sort of rise of a more volatile labor market. Yeah. It's funny because I, well, I was going to wax a biographical for a second. I've basically been a temporary laborer my whole life. I don't, I don't think, I think the longest I had a job was like seven years. So, <laughs> and, yeah, so I, I, I know just what you're talking about. My mother worked in the same place for 30 years. She worked for a school district, and it was uh, – yeah. It's a generational shift. You know, it's uh, – yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's something that it, it goes at these issues, again, of inequality and income that I'm yeah. so concerned about. Well, Lewis, good luck on the project, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you when it's done. Thanks so much, Marshall. Okay, well, thanks, thanks for having thanks me on. Thanks for being on the show. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Lewis Hyman about his new book, Debtor Nation – the History of America in Red Ink. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.